Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc, researcher, you know the drill. And joining us this week is friend of the show and pharmacist, Eleanor O'Rangers. Hello. Woo! And we should say, rightful host of her own show, Space Medicine. Yes, exactly. We just kicked off our fourth season. Uh, so you'll have to take a listen. I have to edit part two of our uh, kickoff episode tomorrow. Yay! Oh my god, I love it. Honestly, it's out of this world. <laughs> this week, I figured it might be fun to take a little deep dive and start our holiday season of stocking stuffers. Shorter episodes, but no less fun. And you might be wondering, why, other than her charming personality, would we invite a pharmacist on to this episode? Unless, of course, the topic was... A drug! Dun, dun, dun. Yay! <laughs> Drugs! Uh, um, by the way, for all of you guys who did not read the title of this episode, you, you, you got the joy from that little segue. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Segways. I will not commit to them. This week, we're going to be going into the history of aspirin. And I know what you're thinking. Of course, it goes all the way back to Hippocrates and willow bark for pain relief. Um, and as much as I would love to claim ancient Greece and will, it wasn't Hippocrates who really used willow bark. And I don't know that he's a direct link in the chain for the discovery of aspirin. So mm. let's talk a little bit about the history of aspirin, how it works, its discoveries, and all the many fun things that it does. Oh, yeah. Sounds good to me. So-called father of medicine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is said modern, to have modern Western medicine as of this recording. <laughs> yeah. Hippocrates is said to have used willow for pain relief, which later led to the development of aspirin. But when you actually look back at the writings of Hippocrates, they barely mention willow. So where does this come from? I mean, he prescribed willow to women in labor. Uh, now, the exact method was a little unclear. Some accounts say it was uh, leaf tea. Others say chew willow bark. But the only records we actually have available, there's just one reference to burning willow leaves to make smoke for fumigating the uterus. And that was to get rid of a miscarried pregnancy. Kind of like, I guess, burning sage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Hippocrates was a giant hippie. Exactly. Oh, wait a minute. Hippocrit okay, I see what you did there. <laughs> it's terrible. Actually, stuff that had salicylates in it, so willow trees and other stuff. And I'm surprised you didn't do this. I guess there is it, it it does go back even further than Hippocrates to another beloved time of yours. Oh, oh, are you talking about it being used by the ancient Egyptians in the Ebers Papyrus. I was actually <gasps> going to grant you one episode without an Egypt mention. <laughs> that was a Christmas want... gift to you. Why would I want to do that? No, 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 no. So, so 
the the <laughs> I love this. The the truth of the matter is when you have something that's mentioned so far back in history. So you're getting back to Eber's papyrus. What was that? How far back is that? Oh, somewhere around three thousand to twenty three hundred BC. Damn. Okay. All right, gotcha. So you've got stuff that has salicylates in it. So these are willow trees and you've got other ones. And, uh, you know, it, it's gone through to Hippocrates, which is what? Fifth century BC, right? So that that's a huge amount of time to bridge. That probably means that this was common usage. So even though it wasn't part of a text or something, it was probably something that like your average farmer or someone knew about, you know, like if you were aching and soaring, like at the end of the end of a day, you'd chew some willow or something. Well, that's the thing. When you're talking about the bark of white willow, and here's where Eleanor's uh, expertise will begin to come in handy, Salix alba, which is what Hippocrates and possibly even the ancient Egyptians were talking about, just doesn't contain a lot of salicin compared with other kinds of willow or plants. So to get a clinically effective dose, and I'll let Eleanor explain what that is, but just chewing bark or drinking willow tea would be unlikely to give you an effective dose of medicinal aspirin. Now, probably more fiber than than medicinal aspirin. The real Greek who got into uh, herb lore was another botanist and you know santosh i think this is going to be a running gag okay all right i'm I'm braced well i mean we're just seeing so many botanists take root on this show (laughs) (laughs) i feel like the joke has been firmly planted Uh, Uh, i mean you know now that it's uh, blooming (laughs) (laughs) but pedanius dioscorides was a Greek who grew up in Rome and wrote a guidebook of medicines uh, still in print today. And he's the one who really went into the many uses of willow, and he described it as a remedy for stomach ache, uh, also for the respiratory disease, tuberculosis, as a contraceptive. Look, he made perhaps a few errors yeah. his claims. <laughs> well, uh, if we're talking about salicin or salicylates, um, uh, well, I'll actually ask Eleanor, does some of this jive with what salicylates can do? I mean, because it has such a wide array of targets chemically. Right. Well, um, yeah, I mean, certainly the, the anti-inflammatory properties, I'm, you know, that's really what sounds like historically it was primarily used for. Um, but let's also not forget it's anti-paretic properties. It's fever reducing properties. I'm sure they, they're I'm going to assume that some people may have recognized that back back in the day as well. Well, he was, in fact, a physician in the Roman army and wrote De Materia Medica, a five-volume Greek encyclopedia about herbal medicine. So one of the very first pharmacopias that has never gone out of print in the last oh, 1,500 years or so. Wow, that's fascinating. Damn! Yeah, damn. So that's kind of like uh, Grey's Anatomy, you know, going all the way back, or Starbucks, or (laughs) stuff. Well, you know, speaking of going way back and still and still around today, you know, willow bark is still sold as an herbal as well. Um, And I know that my nail technician's mom was asking me questions about these really strange, um, like 
round, dark pellets that she got when she was in Vietnam. And when I kind of figured out what they were, it was actually willow bark that was compounded in these little pills. There's definitely still has a role in, in Chinese medicine and or in traditional herbal medicine. Cool. Well, a lot of the annotations in prints from the 13th and 12th centuries uh, helped to serve as a Rosetta Stone for plants for about 600 different plants in all with languages that have fallen out of use. So they're like, oh, well, the only reason we even know this tribe had access to this plant is because there's a name for it, you know, five or six names. This was, again, a pharmacopoeia, a Wikipedia, and all done still by a Greek. So, you know, I feel slightly mollified. But when we talk about who actually discovered willow as a medication, it's English cleric, Reverend Edward Stone, known by his friends as Edmund. Around 1757, Cleric Stone chewed on white willow bark, I don't know, out of curiosity, just hunger. He chose some reason to just be like, hmm, tree bark. And he was Mm -hmm. struck by how bitter it was. Now, he followed this train of thought to a very different station and wondered whether it could be used medicinally like the bitter cinchona bark, where the malaria drug quinine comes from. And we have talked about uh, the medicinal gin and tonic. And if you haven't been listening to the show for a while, we'll throw that up. We'll throw that episode up later this month. So listen to. uh, Well, first, he gathered and dried around half a kilogram of willow bark. And when I say dried it, he dried it for over three months in a bag on the outside of a baker's oven. I I guess he was just leaving it on the sill like a pie, pounded (laughs) and sifted it. And then next time he had a fever, he dosed himself using tiny amounts. But then as he found it wasn't poisoning him and actually made him feel better, increased the dose. Now, Eleanor, before we go into his letter and things, I want to talk to you about doses Mm-hmm. He increased the dose by two scruples. How oh. many scruples go no. into most modern medicines? Oh my boy, that's that's getting back to like my pharmacy school days where we had to yeah. learn about drams and all that stuff. So, are oh. you telling me you've had no scruples since pharmacy school? I had no scruples <laughs> since pharmacy school. I I love that you know this because. At first, I thought Josh was just throwing out another like weird ass obscure thing like cubits or oh yeah no we <laughs> had to learn get... all this. I hated that in school because it was so an- it was it was antiquated. But yeah, wow. I mean that's the way um, scruples, grains, and drams were the ones that I remember. And um, actually, a scruple is twenty grains and. Um, one medicine I always remember that traditionally was was dosed as grains was actual desiccated thyroid, and I remember oh, that because my mom takes uh, or did take uh, thyroid for a long time, and she took like the desiccated thyroid, and it was five grains. We also used to see arsenic dosed in grains. What is a grain in today's measurement, Eleanor? Because most people, I think, are not, are, are going to picture like, oh, it's just like, you know, a tiny little pebble or a grain of sand or something like that. How accurate is that? I want to say it's like 65 milligrams or something like that. Yeah, it's like 65 milligrams. Yeah, so it's, that's at least a little spoonful of sand. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Not, not just that. So what, a grain's still quite a lot. Now, a scruple is 1 24th of an ounce 
or about one and a quarter grams. So the next time somebody asks you, have you no scruples, you know exactly what they're weighing it as. Or you could say, well, I don't have a scruple, but I have 20 grains, which is actually the same <laughs> thing as a scruple. Oh, we're going to have so much fun with measurement. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great pull for this episode, Josh. Fun with measurement. <laughs> You're, we're going to have people subscribing in droves. <laughs> hey, hey, I will have you know that we do have people subscribing in droves. And they do, and they're all here for the old scruples to grains to grams conversion. <laughs> Take that metric system. So when he had the fever, he ended up taking small doses every four hours, and drying the bark as he did would have actually concentrated the salicin, making it even stronger. So when the powder relieved his fever, he then tried it just for kicks on his parishioners when they were sick. Uh, which, you know, a lot of local priests were the doctors for their villages. And and then after these uh, non-blinded trials, he wrote to the Royal Society saying it worked, and I have a copy of the letter. Imagine one of those The Crown soundtracks in the background, or like a Downton Abbey uh, voiceover. Yeah. And, and then he goes, My lord, among the many useful discoveries which this age hath made, There are very few which better deserve the attention of the public than what I am going to lay before your lordship. There is a bark of a certain English tree that I have found by experience to be a powerful astringent and very efficacious in curing aguish and intermitting disorders. About six years ago, I accidentally tasted of it and was surprised at its extraordinary bitterness, which immediately raised me a suspicion of it having the properties of the Peruvian bark. As this tree delights in a moist or wet soil where eggs chiefly abound, the general maxim that natural maladies carry their cures with them, or their remedies lie not far from the cause, was so very apposite to this particular case that I could not help applying it, and that this might be the intention of providence here, I must have had some little weight with me. He then goes on to describe uh, how he prepared the bark, and how after it worked, you know, on a Q four to six hour dosing, he then dosed his parishioners, and everybody turned out okay. So, happy tales. <laughs> well, wow. I'm glad everyone was all right. <laughs> I love this. These old stories are fantastic. They're just, I, I, this was done with good intention and all this kind of a thing, but holy crap, would this not pass ethics board? To- <laughs> exactly. Where is the IRB? <laughs> oh, Oh, they you mean the Royal Society? That's who we sent the letter to. And after that, they began to advise willow bark and some herbals, and pharmacists began trying to extract salicylic acid from willow bark and meadowsweet. Now, fun etymology fact, meadowsweet is uh, the Latin name at the time was Spirea, which ah. you see where this is going? I think I knew where <laughs> Well then, by all means, feel free to jump in and tell us where aspirin was named from. We have to fast forward a couple of years. I mean, there were some other people doing experiments with salicylates and salicin and all sorts of good stuff. And then finally, dun-dun-dun-dun, 
1897, German chemist Felix Hoffman from the Bayer Corporation actually developed aspirin. He actually chemically synthesized it. And how he named it comes from the chemical components that he used to put it together. So A in aspirin stands for acetyl because he um, that was part of the composition of the molecule. And spear is derived from the spirea plant or meadowsweet, um, which contains thalassin. And in was a suffix that was commonly used for drug at the time of the first stable synthesis of the compound. So aspirin, aspirin, there you go. Around the same time and up till 1950, which will be another important date later, there was also the use of chewing gum, which began to have aspirin as a component, and it was named asper gum because had all the same starts, gum. However, however. I, I actually have tried that. It used to be, it was manufactured for a long time. Oh, wow. we, You know, let's take a quick detour to talk about Aspergum. Uh, is this a detour onto like eBay for like collector's edition? <laughs> Are we going to find some packet somewhere in a, like in a, uh, what do you call it? In a Topps baseball card pack? <laughs> well, believe it or not, I'm just looking it up on Wikipedia, which of course is, you know, my my only standard go-to for drug information. It actually contained three and a half grains of aspirin. And was available in cherry and orange flavors. Mm. I actually remembered using taking aspirin as a kid. The reason I wanted to tie back is we chewing gum has been around just as long as aspirin. The ancient Greeks were known to be fond of a gummy substance named mastiche derived from the resin of the mastic tree. In fact, this is where you get the first uses of the word masticate uh, mm. because of the chewing you had to perform on this gummy substance. And you know who first wrote about this plant? Why Greek Roman physician and medical botanist of the first century, Dioscorides. Ah, Ooh. tying it all together. So he recommended chewing mastic resin, so a little bit of this plant combined with beeswax, which was a softening agent. And that was sort of the very first gum. And then we take this all the way forward to, uh, well, 1924 is when you first started seeing medicated aspirin chewing gum. Asper gum, gum with aspirin in it. And for, you know, those of you who don't like pills, was still being sold until 2006. There you go. And this was over the counter. This wasn't in cherry and orange flavor. Or yep. like no, over the counter, carried around by Barbara Streisand and other celebrities of the day. However, good news, folks, as of January 2016, Retro Brands USA. Have plans to relaunch the Aspergum brand. Wow. No word Excellent. on if they're going to measure it in grains, drams, <laughs> <laughs> or minims. Or yeah, another one. Minims or scruples. <laughs> I don't know if Retro Brands has scruples. Well, I guess we'll have to find out. <laughs> so the worry is going to be here that like someone decides to chew five sticks at once. Yeah. And something yeah. really bad happens. One of the biggest things I would be immediately concerned about with that would be just stomach irritation from, you know, from that. Because, you know, aspirin, of course, well, we know you can have coated aspirin, 
um, to try to reduce gastrointestinal distress. But I don't think aspergum has any any protection from that. So probably acute stomach gastritis is the thing I would be most concerned about. But the other issue that I always think about with aspirin, if you if you take too much of it, is ringing in your ears, tinnitus, um, tinnitus. So I don't know if, but that I think is usually with chronic use. Oh, so rather than a high dose, you know, taking it over a long period of time. Yeah, that's what I usually think of. It's just chronic. Of course, the only thing I keep thinking of is whenever I think of tinnitus is this cartoon of a doctor with a patient, you know, sitting on a a medical examination table. And it's actually, you know, one of those Harlequin guys. And he has like one of the, the Harlequin hats on with the bells. and He's and the the patient's like saying something like, "Yeah, I don't know. I just keep having this like weird ringing in my ears, and it's because he has a stupid hat on." That's what I. I I will bring up for uh, I I know we're going to probably talk about the acute effects later, but in pediatrics, this was a big deal. We don't fully understand why, but there was this syndrome called Rye syndrome. Yeah. And so if you, for instance, gave some aspergum to a kid, and very specifically, if they had a certain respiratory viral illnesses like influenza, chicken pox, uh, which thankfully, because of vaccination, is a, is a gone thing, these kids would take aspirin. They'd be given aspirin for fever. But if, for instance, they had this and they, they would chew aspergum, they could get this really bad encephalopathy. So they yeah. would be confused and almost like hallucinating. And it could actually really damage their liver very, very acutely. So it was actually very quickly recognized that, oh, you can't give this to a kid. But if aspergum was around, I'm a little scared that <laughs> this could happen. Uh, so that that's one that I definitely think about with um, you're just saying that because local pharmacies were the literal candy stores of their day well and some of them i guess still are (laughs) we have a few throwbacks here where you know we have a pharmacist with a soda fountain who can take a sunrise (laughs) sprinkle it back when when coca-cola really had coke in (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) that's true yeah yeah it'll get you put some pep in your step Sprinkle exactly. some sprinkle cocaine on it. Give you aspirin. Give you aspergum some too. The pharmacist can. <laughs> I never times. figured out though why, why rise syndrome happens though. Um, mm. But but when they when the restrictions were put in, the incidence of rise syndrome went down dramatically. Oh yeah, it was. There was definitely a connection there, and we know now not to use aspirin in children specifically with acute febrile illnesses still though to this day why the hell it happens and why it's a very pediatric entity you know rather than happening in older people it's it's weird we already knew as you mentioned about the pain relieving and anti-inflammatory effects of aspirin and by the time of 1950 it had entered the guinness book of world records as the most frequently sold painkiller a record I believe it still holds to this day, despite the fact that opioids exist. No. 
oh, <laughs> I might put in there prescribed. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Nope. Frequently sold. Oh, yeah. Or sorry, frequently sold. I don't know how much we're keeping track of like the sale of various opiates. Like, I don't know if we can put that down in a ledger. <laughs> so uh, that, that, I mean, opium may have an edge there <laughs> if we were to try to count those. But in 1950, uh, just as aspirin was becoming the most debated sold Guinness world record medication, for painkiller the effects on blood clotting or aspirin as an antiplatelet agent were first being noticed by a family doctor in california lawrence craven now he had been directing all of his tonsillectomy patients to chew aspergum uh for the pain relief and anti-inflammatory he's like this is great you know you can work your jaw if you have your tonsils out you you know, it's a good introduction to the diet and it'll be pain relieving. But he then found that an unusual number of patients had to be hospitalized for severe bleeding, uh, mm. often from the mouth. No, I, I kid. Horror yeah. movie appropriate. Uh, but no, seriously, severe bleeding. And <laughs> all of those patients had been using very high amounts of aspergum. And as you mentioned, Eleanor, three and a half grains, which is about 227 milligrams. Exactly. Wow. That's a, that's a nice dose. See, yeah, fun with measurement. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Craven took one look at this and said, hmm, patients I'm giving aspergum seem to have a lot of bleeding. And he then did the next logical thing and began recommending daily aspirin to all his patients. Wait, what? <laughs> oh, great. They're bleeding out. Everybody, aspirin for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, was he thinking of like heart attacks and strokes or? He claimed that patients who followed his aspirin regime, about 8,000 people, had no signs of thrombosis. But why would they normally? <laughs> was thrombosis a big thing back then? He was a family doctor. He didn't know. He's just like, oh, this stops people from bleeding. Well, maybe not bleeding will prevent collapsing from literally anything. You know, 1950s. So what what diseases did they have back then? Hysteria? That was still a thing. <laughs> um, no, his... wasn't so far back. Yeah, his they... studies, on the whole, were not taken seriously by the medical community because he had never done a placebo-controlled study and had published only in obscure journals. So he was one of the first to hypothesize that blood thinners would be effective for cardiac prevention or protection. I don't know what his thoughts were on strokes. That was around 1950. And in 1971, John Vane, another professor of pharmacology at the University of London, first published research describing how aspirin worked, which is, to make it super short, dose-dependent inhibition of prostaglandin synthesis. I could go into this in more detail, but the guy won a Nobel Prize for this, so <laughs> I'm not going to do it justice. Well, no, but uh, Eleanor, can you walk us through the, the mechanism? Oh, you're really putting me on the spot here this uh. evening. <laughs> As we said, Nobel <laughs> Prize. Yeah. Eleanor, sum it up. No, uh, just just in how the uh, prostaglandins re uh, relate to uh, inflammation. Well, aspirin, as well as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents like Aleve and Motrin, they 
inhibit prostaglandin synthesis, which is involved in the inflammatory cascade. So if you're blocking that trigger to inflammation, that's how it's having its effect. I believe that also has some effects possibly as well in, in temperature regulation in the brain, which is why they work as an antipyretic as well. And for those of you who haven't been you know, sick of us talking about cytokine cascades back in the early days of COVID, again, <laughs> you're dealing with the same kind of inflammatory cascades that you know, aspirin inhibits. So that was, again, in the 70s. So it took 20 years when we first started noticing this antiplatelet activity to really figure out how aspirin worked. And then in 1974, the very first randomized trial of aspirin in the secondary prevention of death from heart attack showed a reduction in mortality of 12% at six months and 25% at 12 months. So very impressive, but the sample size was small enough that the results were deemed statistically inconclusive. Interesting. Now it took over... So it was first, you know, that one guy in California, Mr. Tonsil guy in the 50s, suggested there's a an association with lack of thrombotic events. But it took another like 20, 25 years before an actual trial was initiated. And that one wasn't statistically significant, even though it did yeah. show a positive result. Uh, then in the 90s, we started doing cancer research studies, again, for the clotting aspects that you first suspected, Santosh. Mm-hmm. And all through the 90s, uh, a lot of studies, the CAST, Chinese Acute Stroke Trial, the HOT treatment, hypertension optimal treatment, finally, somebody who gets it. Uh, <laughs> people, basically, a whole bunch of studies you know, kind of continue to confirm. And aspirin still remains one of the most studied drugs on the planet for all the things we are continuing to learn that it can do. But the 90s really was a big benefit when it showed it was a ideal medication for strokes, heart attacks, and really just a good all-around low dose. Uh, It also began to be realized that at higher doses, which is what had been sold before, you'd see much more higher, a much greater incidence of side effects such as stomach irritation, ulcer development, and presumably some of the effects we talked about, some of the other problems we talked about earlier, which is why the 81 or baby aspirin dose was uh, created, well, not created. You know, Santos, you want to tell us why it's baby aspirin? Yeah. (laughs) So that's the orange flavor too. Yeah. yeah. This is the standard child aspirin dose. Uh, Back when we thought, pediatrics, you know, kids were just small adults when we would just go like, oh, you know, less person, less medicine, you know, kind of thing. So it was this weird cutoff that like a child from age four months old all the way to 18 would have the same exact dose because, hey, they're kids. So it got labeled as baby or child's aspirin. This is one that I'm actually very intimately involved with because our institution studies Kawasaki disease, which is a inflammation of the arteries. We don't understand what triggers it, but it is very rare. And this is an inflammatory disease where 
our body starts to attack our own medium-sized arteries, which includes the coronaries in the heart. So it happens, you know, it's like X per 100,000. It's very, very low incidence. And it has been talked about a lot lately because of COVID. We saw this weird other syndrome called Miss C, which was for a while associated with Kawasaki disease. We now know it's not. We know it's a separate thing. Also heavily inflammatory. So you give aspirin for this. And before we had other anti-inflammatory modalities, this was the rescue for Kawasaki's because you would halt the inflammatory cascade and then you would hopefully also reduce the chances of that inflammation causing the coronaries to actually turn into an aneurysm and and blow out and either have a, a clot kind of build up in there or rupture. So it this is how we, you know, one of the ways that we learned how intimately inflammation and clotting were tied together were with the targeted treatment of this specific, very rare disease, Kawasaki disease. So if the 90s were the big time to encourage uh, more and more use of aspirin as it prevented clotting, then the early 2000s, all the way up through about 2015, really focused on the cancer aspects, the, again, anti-clotting, but rather than your cardiovascular system, uh, looking what did the reduced risk of cancer mean for tumor spread in in the vasculature. So a meta-analysis of eight clinical trials found after about five years of follow-up, people who took aspirin daily for a mean of four years had a 44% reduced risk of dying from cancer compared with participants who took a placebo. Now, again, that what does it mean in this case to die from cancer? These They were looking at clotting events that could be directly traced to having a pro-clotting condition like cancer. So heart attack, if you're in a late stage of cancer, would still have counted. Uh, pulmonary embolism or a clot in your lungs also would have counted. It's not that the cancer itself was prevented by the aspirin. Uh, but I thought there was data that, that actually aspirin can prevent like colon cancer, I think. That and- showed up in 2013. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and fun, that was a fun- Ooh, reference burn. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> From from the women's health study. So let me mansplain this study to you, Eleanor. Yeah, please do. <laughs> it was Son of a bitch. <laughs> How dare you? It was a large primary prevention trial among women that initially suggested aspirin lowers the risk of stroke without affecting the risk of heart attack or other cardiovascular death. So uh, that was the general one. This it continued all the way up. For, through 2013, and that showed that among the other benefits, long-term use of alternate-day low-dose aspirin did result in a 42% reduction in colorectal cancer incidence with, for unclear reasons, uh, at least as opposed to vasculature, but benefits appear after 10 years. It also showed increased risk of GI bleeding and ulcers, which makes sense given what we already know. But that's why I was asking if you anything about the tinnitus, because it's just not something I've tracked, and I had honestly forgotten that was a side effect of aspirin use. Yeah, it's chronic. It's with chronic high-dose use that you can see it. But it's not that frequent because we're not routinely overdosing people on, on aspirin, I think, number one. And I think probably if you look 
today at the, what, what is probably the more like, more commonly used medications for like general inf inflammation, it's probably going to be non-steroidals like Motrin and Aleve, uh, not so much aspirin. Aspirin nowadays is more relegated towards, you know, the cardiac patient and, and possibly, you know, for anti-cancer prevention. But, you know, I just don't see aspirin used quite as much as it used to be in the past. So maybe it has fallen from its Guinness Book of World Records, you know, record back in 1950. So you're saying that aspirin is now moving to a younger, hipper crowd or less hipper replacement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's largely because um, results from studies like Arrive and Asprey, uh, Asprey is aspirin in reducing events in the elderly, and Arrive is aspirin to reduce risk of initial vascular events, have shown that in people who have high risk of bleeds, aspirin's harms may outweigh its benefits. And especially in older people who often have hearing and vision problems that can affect balance, who are at higher risk of strokes, but equally high risk of brain bleeds if they are incorrectly dosing medication due to other memory issues. So as you're right, aspirin is starting to fall slightly out of favor, although that doesn't mean that it's not recommended or used. Just that a lot more thought is put into, you know, would you rather have somebody die of a stroke from a traveling clot to their brain or from a bleed in their brain after falling down only two stairs because their blood was thin enough to prevent the one? So it's it's a real devil's bargain. But oh, let's let's end on a happier note and go back to talking about Aspergum and... And just the story of gum in general. So, as I said, the Retro Brands USA does plan to relaunch the brand, although I don't know if 2020 interfered with that. But I looked up, I went on a whole wiki dive about medical gum in this, and it was a huge field for a while. They were creating numbing gums, uh, aspirin gums, like any medicine you could shove into a rubber chewy form was in it. And the Mayans were not too far behind the Greeks in developing the custom of chewing gum. In around the 2nd century, they practiced an art of chewing that was later to be known as chicle, the coagulated sap of the sapodilla tree. So they would deliver plant medicines through chiclets. <laughs> oh, chiclets. Yeah. Well, or, or rather, chiclets were named for chicle. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and the modern day gum products date back to 1869 when General Santa Ana was uh, using a chicle tree for this purpose. So he found it as rubber. But all of that is incidental. I just like that we have the Mayans invented chiclets, the Greeks invented, you know, masticating or the ancient art of chewing gum, and that a family doctor is like, hmm, a lot of people that chew this gum or bleeding, I better prescribe it to everybody. That's that's real forward thinking. <laughs> yeah, but it is. Science! <laughs> so the next time somebody tells you about Hippocrates being the discoverer of aspirin or willow bark, you have a whole bunch of fun aspirin facts to toss back at them. And we encourage you to do it. <laughs> Um, yeah, we'll look forward to all of you sending us your marriage stories. <laughs> <laughs>
And Do you remember how we met when I cur- when you corrected my misconception about the history of aspirin? Aww. <sighs> and I had more Bam Lim and Afabab song follow-ups for you Yay. that had been submitted to us. <laughs> That's so awesome. People submitted Bam Lam and Bam Lam and Vab. Bam Lam. I put out oh, a call. I put out a call for for other songs that would work with COVID antibody drug Bam Lam Ivamab. Oh. Yeah, Wham Bam Bam Lam. Yeah. Uh, Eleanor, if you haven't Bam, listened Bam. to it already, uh, Josh's favorite is the song Black Betty by Ram Jam. Yep. So, whoa, Black Betty, Bam Lam. So, <laughs> and thanks to him, I can't go to my COVID committee meetings anymore on the pharmacy and therapeutic side because I start giggling like an idiot. (laughs) Uh, So one of them was, if you're lost, you can look and you will find me. Bam, lamb, the (laughs) map. Okay. Um, It was, it was a real soft rock or ballad one. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it Little Richard who he would go wop bop doo bop bop bam 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 appreciate that they sent me the couplet there's yeah yeah there's um there's a little bit of liberty taken with this but i can't fault anybody because no one knows how to pronounce the goddamn thing the people who have named it and discovered it don't know how to pronounce it properly if only we could go back to aspergum it's simple it tells you what it did bam lamagum (laughs) <laughs> and it's or- orange or cherry flavored <laughs> or or the nyquil green death flavor oh yes mm. oh no you know it's the most disgusting thing as a kid do you, do you remember a drug or it wasn't even really a drug called emetrol what was it oh man that was some nasty stuff you know what it tasted like it was supposed to kind of settle a kid's stomach if they had like you know if they were vomiting and I think all it was was like a hypertonic sugar solution. But all I remember is it tasted it tasted like licking the back of an envelope. Like that, oh, that, that oh. stamp, stamp taste that they don't really have anymore. But it was just, oh, man. It's like, no, it would induce vomiting, not really vomiting. <laughs> That's that glue, like that sweet glue flavor. Yes. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I found oh, my actually, favorite one. We are young. No one can tell us we're wrong. Loves a bam lam and have a vap. That was love is a battlefield. Yep. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> someone's gonna. Someone's gonna come at us with a lawsuit. <laughs> was it all shorter than eight seconds? Are we okay? <laughs> I think my mispronunciations and uh, educational use ought to cover us. 
Oh but my lord! Keep keep submitting them. Let's give Santosh a coronary, and then we can <laughs> slip him, and then we can slip him some aspergum. Exactly. <laughs> you see, you're you a, see, folks, it's all connected. You're so, a bad person. That's <laughs> that's it for this week. As always, we'd love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Extra special thanks to pharmacist O'Rangers for her expertise. And Yay! Ooh, Eleanor, do you think we could have you back sometime soon to uh, to do a COVID update? Talk about bam, 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 bam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now you know why she's a friend of the show. Uh, our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in researching this episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes, Audible, or wherever quality podcasts are found. And until next time, as always, stay safe, wash your hands, mask up, and if you have the ability to and are lucky enough, happy travels. Bye. Bye-bye.